I am unwilling to give up, that I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out, knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control, control, control. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders, We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show, and I'm so thrilled to have my next guest here. We have David Segura here, who is the co-founder and CEO of Glassbox Media. And if you have not heard of Glassbox Media... You need to get familiar with it. It's a very, very interesting company. It's one that, unless you're in the podcast industry, maybe you are not as familiar with it, but it's a fascinating, fascinating company platform that is really enabling podcasters to grow their brands. And David is a serial entrepreneur, previously founded a company called Giant Media. I'm going to make him get a little bit into that and talk uh, a little bit about uh, that company, and as he speaks about his journey, uh, he is currently serving as a CEO um, of Glassbox Media, but was also the CEO from the launch through the acquisition of that company. And as I mentioned, uh, he is a serial entrepreneur, but he's a builder, have a uh, enormous amount of respect as I was sharing with him as I was looking a little bit more and and reading about his journey. So I know you'll all be pleasantly surprised, excited about all the lessons um, and information that he's going to share with us today. So without further ado, welcome, David. Hi, glad to be here. Super excited to have you. So let's start at the beginning. I'd love for you, uh, or I should say, not necessarily at your beginning, but at the beginning of Glassbox Media. So how would you describe Glassbox Media? Yeah, definitely. It's one of those proverbial startup stories of the band getting back together. Um, you know, it's a company that was officially formed in the summer of 2020 between me and two, uh, two other co-founders. But, you know, realistically, we weren't even sure what we we're going to focus on at that point in time. We just knew we wanted to work together again. And, you know, after six months of having a lot of debate, doing a lot of market research on media, which is our first love and what we've really worked on traditionally as, an op- as operators, we decided to kind of go all in and basically form Glassbox Media and really fixate on podcasting. So taking a step back, the way I describe Glassbox mission is that we're almost like a record label, meaning that we try to sign up amazing creators who already have momentum who really have already built up a pretty solid listenership. And then we think about ways to use technology and also our past brand relationships to really help take it to the next level, both in terms of growth and monetization. And it's been really an exciting and humbling journey so far. So what was the hole that you saw in the market when you were looking at for an idea? You knew that you wanted to bring the team back together, but what was the what was kind of the missing piece that you saw that you felt like you could solve? Yeah, definitely. We saw a few gaps in the market and continue to see it in podcasting. There's a lot of really awesome creators that have audiences of anywhere from 100,000 monthly people to several million. But what they have in common is that they love storytelling. They care a lot about their franchise and reaching not only the current but future audience. But there's only so much they can do. 
So we saw an opportunity to almost execute a rollup where we leave them in control. We want the creators to not only control the narrative, but also have most of the upside, frankly, with respect to financials and future kind of IP adaptation opportunities. So in a nutshell, just taking a step back, one of our inspirations is really kind of Warner Music, you know, the public uh, you know, record company. What we're okay. really doing in our case is we're partnering with people like Chris at Sleep Cove. What we're doing with that is not building his business from the ground up, but figuring out ways to manage his ad ops better, where it makes sense, use things like programmatic and automated ads to basically take advantage of some of the unsold inventory and backfill. And additionally, too, every creator we've ever met loves marketing and they have their network. They have their people. They're basically able to trade, let's say, ad host reads and swaps to basically grow their audience and their friend's audience. But inevitably, as a creator, you care about, you know, your story and your franchise marketing and all the business, you know, things for lack of a better term will fall to the wayside. So the way we make that really work is we automate a lot of that process with trailers. We have a lot of shows in our portfolio, over 80 and counting. And believe it or not, our marketing team, which is very friendly, but also innovative, has managed to craft a lot of deals with people that we jokingly call frenemies, meaning like companies we compete against, like Malcolm Gladwell's Pushkin Media, Cast Media in Los Angeles. We actually trade impressions with them, literally millions every single month. And while no money changes hands, we actually very much materially lift the audience size for our podcast, but also their podcast. So it's just an amazing thing that we're able to do. And we thought there was a lot of inefficiencies. That's, that's said with total respect for the creators, but there's a lot we thought we could add to the table. So fascinating. So you had another startup in media before it was acquired uh, called Giant Media. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you, uh, was that your first startup? How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around, available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip. Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning, too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. 
no English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long-term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is the Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, It's essential reading for me. Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family, the Washington Post is my trusted source. Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? You can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including health, as well as some very interesting books. I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is super well done, I think. It makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that the Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of the Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for the Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. It was, yeah. And amazing. You know, my, yeah, yeah, it was a great experience. So the backstory with that company is that, you know, after finishing college, in Chicago, uh, moved out to LA, did management consulting, and at least culturally, you know, I knew pretty early on it wasn't a great fit. If you were to ask them, I think they'd agree. So <laughs> moved on, decided to join a startup, learned a ton, company got acquired, company called Twistbox Entertainment. And then immediately after that, I joined a place called Comedy.com, where I got to work with Dean Valentine, who was at one point the president of Disney Television at ABC. 
And then also on top of that was a CEO of UPN. So learned a lot about working with talent. My first exposure, if you will, to like online media and content creation. But at a certain point in time, I saw the writing on the wall, decided it was time for me to go ahead and make a move. And so my co-founder, um, basically all this is happening in LA. We built a business that essentially helped brands, you know, distribute content. And at least to the extent it was possible, we tried to make it go quote unquote viral. Sure. And at the very least, we generate a lot of earned media. But in a nutshell, I know it's a lot of jargon, a lot of ad tech. The story I like to tell to really kind of bring that point home into like, who were you? What did you do? Really, we got our start in many ways because of a friend of mine, uh, Mike Dubin. Um, he's most famous, obviously, for being the CEO and founder of Dollar Shave Club. And he knew about what we were doing. He was very confident in what he was building. But to ensure that, you know, no missed opportunity occurred, he came to us and basically said, and I kid you not, this is more or less a pitch, I'm going to give you an opportunity of a lifetime to work on the biggest, you know, video of your career. So me and my co-founder and some of the other team members were like a little bit taken aback. Um, but then we saw the video and we agreed. So as soon as that happened, you know, all credit to him and his team. We had honestly very little to do with that, in my opinion. But after that case study was under our belt, it became frankly pretty easy to get business from Gillette, L'Oreal, Heineken, and a lot of other amazing brands we got to work with over the years. So it was a thrilling experience to build Giant Media. So interesting. So you left Giant Media after the acquisition. You didn't stay on. But what was kind of the biggest lesson you learned in growing that company? When Thinking back, if you were you know, sharing with a friend over beers or uh, a cup yeah. of coffee. I mean, what what would it be? What would you say? I wish I would have done that. I mean, maybe you would have, maybe it would have helped you to grow faster. Maybe, uh, maybe, you know, you would have sold the company uh, it, uh, faster. Maybe you shouldn't have sold the company, whatever it was. What, what do you think was kind of the big lesson learned? Yeah, there's so many, um, you know, obviously we all tend to grow from lessons learned, mistakes made, and I made plenty that could take up a whole show, but I'll just <laughs> say, and looking back on it, the most practical thing, and this is what I learned after the fact is that you have a life as an entrepreneur, both pre and post acquisition. Um, speaking of pre acquisition, this is common sense, but I have to admit sometimes I lack that. Um, more or less what I saw on my side is that the serious bidders, the companies who were very interested in buying us basically made multiple bids, drove the price up. It literally only consisted of companies where either me or my co-founder had personal relationships. Perhaps. So the advice I'd give to entrepreneurs out there that are listening is that the advice that they're getting from investors and friends that are saying, hey, build your business. You know, companies are basically bought, not sold. Um, you need to keep your head down and work. That's correct. But the contradictory part to that story is that if you do want to sell your business um, or your investors obviously want you to at some point, you need to go out and like build relationships the same way you pursue brands or other types of partners. Acquisitions are basically done the same way, just at much higher stakes. So looking back on that experience, I'm not trying to you know jump ahead or anything, but at Glassbox, we've learned because of that process. And while we know we have to build an awesome franchise and show value and do right by podcasters first, we are talking to some of the people and some of the companies that we think might be end acquirers, forming relationships and business partnerships when and if it makes sense. So to me, you know, that matters, planning, 
even like literally years in advance of like an event that you're pursuing. That was the biggest takeaway or learning I got from the whole experience. No, I think that's really important to sort of have a, uh, you know, call it your North Star or uh, maybe it's your your North Star company, even if it doesn't end up going that direction in the end. I think always having a goal out there is really, really um, important. And I think, you know, it's it is a look, it's the best salespeople know that, too, that it it's uh I, you know, I laugh because I was just telling this story to an entrepreneur the other day who asked me if I knew anybody at McDonald's. And I said, well, I've been emailing McDonald's about getting hint on the Happy Meal uh, trays for years. But uh, as as my um, as my husband says, it's been a uh, monologue, not a dialogue necessarily, but I still have had a goal of, of trying to yeah. make that happen. And and I think it's the same with actually selling your company, that it's really, really important to always have um, somebody out there. And really, it helps you to kind of learn how your company could be doing better as well. So, And your predictions might not be exactly what they're looking for um, either. Um, I'd, I feel like, would you agree with that? Oh, totally. Um, nothing ever works out exactly as you plan. You know, we're really thrilled with the outcome. It was an amazing, honestly, life-changing acquisition for us. And, you know, we stayed on. I mean, just to clarify, like I stayed on for two years after. It was one of those things where there was kind of a golden handcuff situation. Uh, most of it was obviously kind of like paid up front, but they did make it, you know, worthwhile to kind of continue to stay. And I continued to learn. But I do think what you think will happen versus what happens, like seldom matches. But hopefully if it's been like organized or managed like the right way, uh, you'll still get a great experience out of it. And I think it's definitely been true in my career thus far. So interesting. So you've been in the industry for a bit and uh, have had incredible uh, success. I, I would think like the technology has really changed um, a oh, yeah. lot. And uh, what would you say is kind of the biggest change in technology since you first got started? Yeah, at least for me, and there's both good and I guess, you know, maybe worse elements to this, but, you know, obviously ad tech has continued to evolve you know, the tracking capabilities now, um, even if it's anonymized, uh, you know, can be basically applied to individual users. I think companies have an incredible amount of information on, you know, what people's habits are and what they're doing. So I kind of feel like while there's obviously pros and cons and like, you know, cautionary stories around that, I do think in relation to podcasting, at least what I like about what's happening now is that there is a level of privacy that is maybe a little bit higher than maybe a social network play or an ad spend there. And I think brands appreciate that. But at the same time, some of the stereotypes that even I had about podcasting, frankly, in 2020, I've learned aren't true. So as an hmm. example, we have a few cannabis clients and others that really just for strategic more than regulatory reasons, only want to operate, let's say in Florida and California. And so what we thought, and obviously they thought, is that there's no way to geotarget a host spread message directly to a city or state. But it turns out that's not the case. We've been able to do that pretty simply, kind of like mirror the experience of like the proverbial baked in ad, if you will, but do huh. it dynamically, record it, still have it seamless, not have it be interruptive at all, but have that sort of experience that real brand advertisers demand. And I think it's been really pleasant to kind of see that happen. That's so interesting. So the podcast, would you say that it's uh, it's getting older, younger? I mean, where, where do you think that the audience is, is headed? Yeah. So I'll say this, you know, back in the day, I remember 
representing Giant and our acquirers, Ad Knowledge, um, a company that's backed by TPG. I was in Cannes Lions, which is like the ad part of the, you know, Cannes Festival. And I remember that's the first time I'd ever heard of any podcast, Serial. And I was kind of blown away by, you know, kind of what they were doing and just getting an appreciation, I guess, for the medium. But back then it was really about the story. And I kind of feel like now people are talking about the capabilities of which audience they're pursuing. In other words, NPR and, you know, those sort of podcasts always have a lot of place. But now we're seeing podcasts related to sports, you know, like Stephen Smith is doing a podcast, Michael Irving. Um, there's basically something for everyone. And I know that sounds like almost like too cute or too precious an answer, but that's part of the beauty of like what we're doing and why we love podcasting. We decided for better, for worse, to not fixate on just business, just true crime, just female or male interest. We have a whole portfolio because we know there's different audiences for different types of content. And that's something uh-huh. to me that's super exciting. You know, it's interesting. I was talking to a CMO the other day and they were talking to me about downloads and sort of they were looking uh-huh. at companies and, and uh, you know, I mentioned to them, I mentioned to you, I have a daughter that listens to a ton of podcasts and she would never download a podcast, because, but she streams them. And because that's, you know, going to use way too much space. And so I said, you just have to be really careful, you know, obviously IAB and all that, but you have to just be careful about, you know, saying, oh, well, they're just streams. They're not downloads. I mean, she's definitely listening, um, just does. And so I think like there's that, that there's still this confusion that goes on amongst, you know, branders around, um, well, what exactly am I looking at that is not, um, you know, it's not clear to so many people. Oh, that's definitely the case. Like a lot of our former clients um, at Giant, you know, most of them are very large big box brands, CBG, automotive, et cetera. And most of their buying are done by the kind of subsidiaries of the global, global publicly traded um, agencies. A lot of them have concerns because in social or video, what they're used to is not just knowing like, well, when am I running? How long am I running? Is it US only? They also expect to know exactly when their mid-roll was played, um, was it triggered this many times or when. But the truth is, since a lot of the systems are closed, like Apple, for example, um, they don't know that. What they actually know is that it ran or was supposed to run on a given episode or across a given episodic catalog, but there's no way to verify that. So there are a little bit of like, let's just say gray spots in this industry that I don't think are super problematic, but at least leave room for questions which can sometimes like limit spending. But I think as people get more comfortable between the differences between a download and a listen, um, a lot of those concerns will go away. So that's something yeah. that we're happy about. And it's a long-winded way of saying we've been doing a lot more education than we thought. But if that's what it takes to get people comfortable with investing in the space, we're obviously invested, so we'll do it. It's funny. I was uh, totally aging myself here, but I was in the early days of, uh, of cable and so I uh, had worked for CNN um, when it wasn't measured um, in the early 90s. And Ted Turner was still running around the office. And it was, uh, you know, and I mean, it was I was there when he found out CNN found out that a country realized that they had just been bombed um, by uh, by watching CNN. And, you know, it didn't matter. 
that it had measurement or not. It's really the quality of the audience um, mm-hmm. that was watching it. And it's uh, I, that's how I view podcasts today. It's like there there's definitely this gray zone, um, but you have to figure out like, you know, does it have the content? Who would be listening to this type of content, et cetera? And I think it's very, very similar to what happened in the early days of cable. I'd agree. Yeah, definitely. So so you've grown companies, scaled companies, sold companies, invested in companies as well. Um, you know, you're speaking to your younger self uh, starting a company, uh, or maybe you think you want to start a company. Uh, but would you would you go into work and management consulting first? Uh, try and learn a little bit before you actually went out and started a company. What do you, what do you think you would do, knowing what you know today? So there's some things obviously that I would do the same, and other things that I would do differently uh, with hindsight. Um, the one surprising piece of advice I have, especially for younger entrepreneurs or first time founders, they don't expect this, and sometimes they don't want to hear it, but I'll say it anyways. I do think as much as I felt that management consulting was a bad fit for me, you know, kind of a global, more stuffy culture, if you will, whereas I'm much more informal, much more of an entrepreneur. I think even though I didn't enjoy the experience at the time, looking back on it, getting that foundation was great. Just learning how to be a professional, learning how to work with clients. And as silly silly as it sounds for a liberal arts major, learning how to use Excel and PowerPoint, um, it was invaluable. So that first year and a half of my professional life, uh, I wouldn't give it for, uh, back for anything. So when I talk to a lot of younger entrepreneurs, because, you know, it's a stereotype, but I think it's true. Each generation just gets stronger and stronger. A lot of them are ready, maybe intellectually, and they might even have the, the, the maturity, which I didn't to start right away. But they almost regret or feel guilty about, let's say, working at a bank or a hedge fund. And I'm like, no, this is the right thing. Work for a big company, get soft skills, figure out what you want to do. And there's always plenty of time. So that's one piece of advice that I would give to, you know, entrepreneurs out there. In terms of things that I did wrong, or at least had to learn the hard way, and that's part of life, maybe post-acquisition, I remember one of my friends and mentors just pulling me aside and just explaining he's been here before. You know, you're going to learn a lot, sometimes the hard way, but he was like, as an investor, you know, that's a great thing. It's a crapshoot sometimes, you know, follow your gut and invest in people you trust, but don't feel like you have to overdo it. You know, take your time. If you can, don't even invest like for this next year. And of course I didn't do any of that. I just went all in and, you know, I wouldn't say over-invested, but definitely kind of spread myself out in a way where. In retrospect, it was great because I learned a lot. I've invested in some industries that I knew very little about. But at the same time, it was just difficult to manage because at least in the early days, entrepreneurs, I mean, they need help. And if you're a friendly, accessible person, they're going to ask you. So at one point, it was just too much. So now that I've spread it out a little bit more, I have invested in almost 80 companies at this point and a lot of funds, but have slowed down just a bit now that I'm focusing on Glassbox. So, you know, different strokes for different folks, but sometimes like less is more. And what have you seen on the investor side in terms of, uh, you know, do you, I feel like there's some investors that actually just really draw a line in the sand that's, that do not, especially in the early stage, they don't want to uh, kind of roll up their sleeves and be helpful um, to entrepreneurs. Yeah. They really just want to give you the cash and, you know, hope that you're going to, uh, just make magic out of it. But I think that there's others that are truly helpful. I mean, what, what do you think, 
you look for in in an investor if you're going to go out and raise capital in the early days um you know get that seed money in uh do you care about having investors in those early rounds that are really being helpful and i know you also had private equity involved um I think private equity can be good and can be not so good, uh, and or I should say, not so friendly to entrepreneurs. What's your sort of take on that? Yeah, it's it's different. It's different for everyone. Everyone's experience is very different. But what I will say is that, you know, for me as an investor, obviously they determine if I've added value or not. But at least when I make investments, you know, at the pre-seed or seed level, whether I'm making a material investment or even leading a syndicate. Um, or just investing, you know, kind of the standard 25K or whatever, um, I try to add value. So I listen to them. Most of them are pretty open about the issues they're facing or what they want. And then I try to make things happen. So I think a good investor will know the limits. It's not their company. You need to back the founders and kind of like stay out of the way, if you will. But if they say, hey, I need some introductions to some VCs or, hey, I think you know the folks at Wavemaker, can you make an intro? more than happy to do it. And I kind of feel like at least in those first few years, it takes that level of support, a community, if you will, to kind of see a company through the pre-seed seed to series A. And I'm willing to do my part. But on the flip side, you know, as a as a founder of Glassbox, you know, we're raising our seed right now and previously like, you know, completed a pre-seed. We have investors that are, they set expectations, I think, pretty well. But for the most part, they're there if we need them, but aren't necessarily going to be hands-on. And then we have other folks that really expect us to kind of not only keep them informed, but want us to make use of them. And I think while they're very different use cases, like both work, um, I'm happy to work with both. But yeah, sure. Anyone that actually wants to help us, I'm more than welcome that anytime. No, that's great. And I love that, you know, you got the team back together. Uh, Do you think that that is Mm -hmm. something that, you know, as a second time founder, is it easier Uh, to go out and raise money? Do you feel like it's, I mean, right now, I think it's super challenging for so many entrepreneurs um, in every industry uh, to to raise the capital. But do you you feel like it's slightly easier versus the first time, first go around? Yeah. I mean, the backstory with um, Giant is that it was bootstrapped the whole way. We did do a secondary round, but that was really because um, our CFO, CEO at the time, unfortunately had a medical incident. Luckily, he ended up being okay. But we had to raise money to kind of have a stake bought out. You know, he wanted that kind of peace of mind. So we did it, but we kind of pursued, you know, our exit ourselves and we're able to have a really great outcome. This time around, we thought the podcast industry is moving so quickly. We also wanted to be able to support secondary use cases like book publishing and even TV adaptations. And so we know we needed capital to do that. So the short end of, I guess the short answer is that we had that network we were able to put together a pre-seed round relatively quickly. And yes, I will say in this environment, even for me or experienced founder, whatever you want to call it, it is more challenging. And I kind of feel like I totally understand why. I mean, yeah. 2022 is hard on any growth investor, whether they're VC, angel, or just exposed to the public market. And so I think the fear factor is higher for investors and they really yeah. want to understand that you have a path towards profitability and sustainability. Uh, maybe more so in the past, but you know, that's fine. I mean, I think it's fair to set expectations and as long as we meet them, it's been cordial. So it's not a problem. Yeah. And I think it's the, the key thing is, is, you know, as I share with so many entrepreneurs during these challenging times uh, that we 
it end up having. I've seen it uh, back in 2008, 2009 as well, when we really needed capital. And my story that I always, you know, share with people is if you can slow things down, uh, you know, don't give away the store, literally, but um, try and figure out how you can conserve capital along the way. But if you get yourself into a position where you're not going to be able to do that, um, then, you know, you're really foolish because you're going to make dumb yeah. mistakes. And ultimately, that's what will tank your business. So um, I'm sure you've I agree. seen that along the way, too. Um, but so, so interesting. Well, thank you so much, David. This has been an incredible interview, and and I'm excited to uh, have everything about Glassbox and you to give people a little bit more information. But you're an incredible entrepreneur. I can't imagine you sitting still and not being a builder. So I think we're going to see a lot of you over over the years doing really, really cool stuff. And uh, And as we were talking about, some of the podcasts that you're working closely with, uh, if you want to mention those too, that are um, kind of some of the top ones that people might see. Yeah, we have amazing content. Um, you know, one of our podcasts that I think I referenced already, but it's called Sleep Cove. So for anyone that has, let's say, either sleep or anxiety type issues, this is a great podcast built by a team out in the UK uh, with a monthly audience of over 2 million listeners every single month. Additionally, another show that's kind of near and dear to my heart is uh, Missing. And Missing, a little bit of a darker vibe, but it's a show that covers stories of folks that, you know, unfortunately are missing or disappeared, and they try to do their best to shed light and break news on a lot of these cases. So we have a huge investment in true crime in general, and Missing is one of our, our most favorite shows. And then, of course, we're signing a lot of new types of content. Uh, there's a really fun show that I like. Um, you know, It's called Everywhere, um, Everywhere, Everywhere Daily. And basically what's cool about Gary's show is that, you know, it's really covering like snippets of travel in all sorts of different locations, you know, all around the world. I think he told me he's been to over like 50 countries at this point. So it's presented in a very short, fun fashion, anywhere from seven, 12 minutes. And I think that's just an amazing show that's, I think, going to do really well for us and obviously for him. So we're overjoyed to be working with him. That's incredible. Well, thank you again, David. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks again for listening to The Kara Golden Show. If you would, please give us a review and feel free to share this podcast with others who would benefit. And of course, feel free to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of our podcast. Just a reminder that I can be found on all platforms at Kara Golden. And if you want to hear more about my journey, I hope you will have a listen or pick up a copy of my book, Undaunted, which I share my journey, including founding and building Hint. We are here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Have a great rest of the week and 2023. And goodbye for now. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, But achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Undaunted. 
Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Golden. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.